season of prayer and fasting. And last week, uh, if you weren't here, and many of you weren't, uh, because it was New Year's Eve and cold and misty, I, I understand. I, I preached a sermon that I do a lot of times at the beginning of the year, which is from Proverbs, which talks about how we need to wake up. That many of us, we get lulled into sleep over a period of time. And the points were this, we need to wake up to the call for diligence. God is calling us to be diligent, not to let our guard down. To wake up to the command of action. God has steps for us that he wants us to take. And to wake up to the crisis of deception in our, in our lives. The terrible thing about being deceived is that you don't know you're deceived. I mean, that's really the heart. That's the horrible thing about it is you're walking a path thinking you're going the right, right direction and you're not. Uh, and we need to wake up to the truth that God has a plan for us. And really, he's the only one who can reveal it to us by the power of the Spirit, by the people of God, by his word. It's the only, otherwise, we, if, we were, if we knew we were deceived, we would stop. I mean, really, how many times have you been driving down a road saying, I'm going the wrong direction, but dadgummit, I'm so happy. I'll never get where I'm supposed to be, but, you know, this is so much fun. No, no, you, as soon as you realize it, some of you may, uh, I don't know how you, how you work, but uh, that's not how I roll. I, I want to be headed in the right direction. I want to be going the right way, and, and I need somebody at times to tell me, you're, you're, you're not on the right direction. Paul says it like this, it's light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. We need to wake up. We need to wake up to make the most of every opportunity. We need the light of the Spirit of God to shine in our lives. Now, by the way, this is all last week. I'm not going to preach last week's, though, though it kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Uh, but we need to wake up to what God is doing in our lives. And now, when I wake up in the morning, many times, I, I, to be honest, I wear contacts. And so, um, you know, I don't have glasses on right when I wake up or contacts. I used to sleep in them. I used to take them out once a month, whether I needed to or not, uh, my contacts. I, I know for those of you who know this, it's horrible to do that. But it, it worked for me, and I really liked it. I liked being able to wake up and see the clock. Uh, for instance, to know what time it is and whether I had to get up or not, rather than lean over at the clock and squint to try and see what time it is. But many times, when, even when I put my glasses on right when I wake up, it takes a minute for my eyes to focus on what is going on in the world around me. And I've gotten older, it takes me a little longer to focus than it used to. Um, I actually have these contacts, and I, I don't understand how they work. Really, it's, it's a mystery to me. They're bifocal contacts. So I don't know how it figures out when I'm seeing there or seeing here. You know, I'm, I've never been able to figure out what it is about these contacts so that it can tell, they can tell, if I'm looking in a distance. The doctor tried to describe it to me one time like there are circles or bubbles in the contact themselves, and your brain sorts it out as it goes through. But as I've gotten older, my brain takes just a second longer to figure out, am I looking far or seeing close? Do I need to focus outward, or do I, am I looking at the page? Now, honestly, one of the things I've done is I just keep making the print on my sermons get bigger and bigger. 
so that I can actually, uh, I, I can actually see it. But I think it's time for us to wake up and to refocus on what God has for us as a people. Uh, if we're not careful, we, we, have, we have become focused on just the wrong thing. I'll give you an example. It seemed like when I was younger, there were heroes that we looked to. We looked at people's lives, you know, from George Washington to Winston Churchill to someone else, and they seemed heroic to us. What they did, how they stood in the gap, what, what they accomplished in their time. But now we've lost that sense of the heroic. Instead, what we focus on is their weakness rather than their strengths. We've lost that sense of, we've become disillusioned with everyone and everything. And as a matter of fact, we think that being disillusioned and critical is a sign of maturity. Oh, we're so wise now. We see that these people aren't perfect. And instead of celebrating the greatness, we revel in their weakness. We criticize everything, everything, and think it shows how wise we are. Just to be honest, some of you will leave this place today and you'll criticize the music. You'll criticize the sermon. You'll criticize the flow of worship, thinking that, oh, isn't that great spiritual insight or great wisdom? I, I want to contend this, that, that that really, this loss that we experience I believe is related to our loss of relationship with the God who created us. There, there's a sense that we have lost our direction. We've lost our purpose. Marilyn Robinson, in a book called The Death of Adam, says this, When a good man or woman stumbles, we say, I knew it all along. And when a bad one has a gracious moment, we sneer at the hypocrisy. It is if there is nothing to mourn or to admire, only a hidden narrative now and then apparent through the faults, surface narrative. And the hidden narrative, because it is ugly and sinister, it is therefore true. I don't know if you follow the way I'm reading. In other words, in our age, what we've become is a people who see the sinister behind everything. We see the negative behind everything, and rather than celebrating greatness or goodness, we've lost our sense of the good. I believe that... Let me see if I can phrase this in the way I'm trying to projected today. We, we, not, we need not so much revival as we need reforming. In other words, we need a, a reforming of our purpose. We need a refocus. Now, I know revival is a good word, but what is God going to revive if we don't have the right purpose? A.W. Tozer said this, a revival of the kind of Christianity which we have had in America the last 50 years would be the greatest tragedy of the century. 
a tragedy which would take the church a hundred years to get over. In other words, when we talk about revival, we don't, we're not saying we need a revival of what happened 20 years ago. We don't need a revival of what happened 50 years ago. We need a re reforming of the way we see God and the purpose of the church and his plan for us. And if, if revival is the, the word you want to use, then we need a revival of the power and presence of God unhindered in our midst. It's a different picture. So when I read that passage from Isaiah 43, where he says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, see I am doing a new thing, we need, to, we need God's purpose and plan for us for today. I just finished a book called The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath. It's a... It's a I, it's a great book. I, it's one of those books I would recommend everybody read. Uh, it's not necessarily a Christian book, though I believe these guys must be. There's some things throughout it that I sense are kingdom-minded, but God's kingdom is at work all around us. Sometimes people don't even know that they're being used by God for his kingdom, but it talks about the power of moments. And they, they refer to a study uh, by uh, Professor Morton Anderson at the University of California, Berkeley, who has a new book that's not even been released yet, that's about to be, called Great at Work, How Top Performers Work Less and Achieve More. Amen? Anybody for that? Work less, achieve more. <laughs> Great at work. And he interviewed 5,000 bosses and workers to see who were the highest performers so to speak, of those 5,000. You with me? Interviewing bosses and workers to see who was the highest. And what he measured was their understanding of purpose. Why am I doing what I'm doing? What is my job about? Why do I do this? What is accomplishing the vision for this place? And their passion for it, how fired up they are about it. Now, as you can imagine, the people with the highest passion and the greatest understanding of purpose they were the, they're the ones who accomplished the most. 84th, 80th, 80th percentile was there. I mean, they're, they're the high performers. Can you guess who the lowest performers were? Those who had no passion and no purpose were in the 10th percentile of where they achieved. People, this is where it gets tricky. Where do you think the next one would fall? Well, remarkably, it's the people who have low purpose but high passion. They only are in the 20th percentile. But the higher performers were those who had actually lower passion but understood their purpose. You know, this was startling to me. I've always been a guy big on passion. Yeah, let's get fired up about it. Let's understand it. But think about it like this. Today, somewhere in the country, I don't know who's playing football today, but let's pretend tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, there's a national championship game. Alabama and Clemson are playing. No, I'm just kidding. They, Alabama already beat them. Alabama and Georgia. And this is Caleb, by the way. This is an Auburn fan's worst nightmare. Uh, your two biggest rivals are playing the national championship. You left home. Anyway. Let's just pretend that one of the teams takes the field and they are absolutely fired up. They're going to 
go out and kill the other team, but they have no idea what they're doing. But they are totally fired up about it. And the other team is not as fired up and knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing. What this study tells us is that the odds favor the purposed team versus the fired up team. And what the authors of the book of Moments actually say about this is that purpose triumphs passion. Now this goes against, again, much of our, we think we just need to be fired up. You need purpose and passion, is what I would say. But if you only had one, actually, in most cases, purpose will triumph over passion. And what you need to do, we need to do, is pursue our purpose. Because purpose is not discovered, it's cultivated. It's not a aha moment, generally. It's something that comes over a period of time. Now, I, I, I could preach a whole thing on this, because some of you are doubting uh, this whole idea because you're passion people. But let me just say this. We in the church have substituted passion and emotion for God's purpose. And I think it's been deadly for us. And I don't want to minimize passion. I want us to be passionate for God's purpose. Do you understand? You can't just be passionate for passion's sake. Otherwise, you lose your moorings. By the grace of God, we need to understand his purpose. And so in this Isaiah passage, I'm going to try and back up. When I, when I started hitting this passage uh, last weekend about God is doing a new thing, I, I was very excited about it until I backed up a chapter <laughs> and looked at how Isaiah, what he is actually saying and he, how he got to where he got to. And I think it's a word for us today. I know it's a word for me. And so if you don't mind, I just want to do a Bible study with us uh, to understand, hopefully, bring us to a perspective on God's purpose. I like to do this every so often. This is not as topical as it is just walking through a passage. So we're going to back up to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 18. And really, I could back up like another couple of chapters, but I don't have time to preach all of Isaiah. So I'm going to back up to a starting point on Isaiah 42:18 to kind of run us into, but headed toward that, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, see I'm doing a new thing, and how Isaiah gets there. So here's the issue. First of all, we need to be willing to confront the problem. We have a problem, and if we're not careful, we don't understand that we have a problem, but we have a problem. Here's what Isaiah is saying to the people of God at that time, and I think it applies in many ways to us in the church today. He says this, Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? Now, here's the question. Who's blind? Who's deaf? Who is he talking to? And in the context of this passage, it gets a little tricky. It gets a little tricky. First of all, you might say, who, who is blind? Is it the idolatrous nations that he's been addressing? Well, no, because he says, here, you deaf, look, you blind. Who is blind but my servant? He's not talking about the idolatrous nations. 
And he's also not talking about the servant of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ. He's been talking about that. If you backed up to verses 1 through 18, 1 through here, he's been talking about the servant of the Lord, prophetic word about Jesus coming. But here he shifts gears to talk about, and it, it, the key is over in verse 24, where we'll get to in just a second. He said, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? In other words, what he's saying is, it's the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, who have become blind and deaf. The people of God have become blind and deaf. They've become deceived. What are they blind and deaf to? Well, in verse 21, he said, It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteous to make his law great and glorious. In this sense, I'm not referring to law in the sense of legalism. I'm, I'm referring to law in the sense of God gave his law to the, the people of Israel so that they would show the nations that their God is a different God. How do they show him? Because they behave differently than everybody else. They follow after him. They do what he tells them to do. That, that was their purpose was to be a light to the nations by displaying the difference between them and the way everybody else operated. But they had lost that purpose. They had they'd become like everybody else. Without getting ugly, how different do we look than the world around us? God's call on his people is the same. You are to be a light to the nations. You're to shine forth different than everybody else. How? By being, in a New Testament way, following God's grace. You're his workmanship created in advance to do good works. This, it's not a legalistic thing. It's a reflection of the glory and love and the grace of God to the world around us. And we need to be willing to confront the problem that we're not that different. And yet we're called to be different, to think different, to act different, to be different. Times have changed. And we need to recognize the changing times in which we live, but that doesn't change who we are in him. I just, there's a Reader's Digest little clip that I just read recently published last year. And it basically said, if you took a, a, an iPhone 7, uh, which is what came out last year, if you, if you took an iPhone 7 and dropped it in the most remote part of any country that has no technology, like if you gave it to a Maasai warrior in Africa, and you just handed it to him, and he actually had coverage wherever he was. I mean, I can't get coverage going up the hill here, but let's pretend that in Africa he had some coverage. Do you know he would have, he would have access to more information than the President of the United States had in the year 2000? That's how fast times are changing. In just 16 years, he would have more access to more information on that phone than the President had in 
at the turn of the millennium. Times are changing. And we need to recognize that the gospel doesn't change, but maybe how we present it to the world. We need to recognize God has given us what we need to accomplish everything for life and godliness. But we need to be willing to confront the problem. Uh, last Sunday, a week ago today, was the 50th anniversary of what's called the Ice Bowl. Uh, you may, many of you, weren't, you're not even 50, so you don't know what the Ice Bowl was. But the Ice Bowl was this, I, I barely uh, remember it, um, but I do remember it. It was this famous game between uh, the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers in Green Bay on New Year's Eve in 1967. Uh, it's called the Ice Bowl. And it was significant because it was like 15 degrees below zero. It's kind of like this cold front we're having right now. And so they, they were playing. The, the field was just frozen in Green Bay. And the Cowboys came to the game with not quite the right equipment. Um, they weren't quite prepared. So their defensive um, coordinator, a guy by the name of Ernie Stoutner, said to them, we don't need no stinking gloves. We don't need gloves to play. Gloves are for sissies. And Bob Lilly, who was a lineman for the Cowboys, he echoed it. Yeah, gloves are for sissies. Come on, we can do this. Let's go play. And Lilly said he really believed that right into the moment he ran on the field and all the Green Bay Packers were wearing gloves. And at that moment, he, and after the game, he said, you know, I think we could have used some gloves. You know, here's the problem. Sometimes we just get all passion worked up. And, but what we need, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But we need to confront the problem that, that's this. We can't do it on our own. We need him. We need his power. We need his presence. We need to focus on what he is calling us to do. Isaiah 42, verses 24 and 25 said, Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand it. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Who, who, who turned them over? God did. Why? Because they had lost their purpose. They had lost. Why? And so he's trying in discipline. He tried to send voices, tried to get them to come back, tried to, to, to say, come back to me, follow after me. Prophet after prophet had come forth and said, we got to change people. We got to do things that we got to get back to the law. And again, not the law in the sense of, oh, we got to follow the law in order to get it, but the law in order to, to accomplish the purpose of being the light to the nations that God has for them. You see, many times we think God is the problem. Here is the problem me. God's not the problem, I'm the problem. And you're the problem. We are the problem. Moving on. Once we understand the problem, we need to be humble before his purpose. 
humble before his purpose. I'm reading on Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. said, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. He's saying, hey, hey, I turned you over to the nations, but don't be afraid. You're still mine. And then he goes on, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. People look at this from a different angle, just for a second. He said, here's the problem. You're the problem. You've lost your purpose. So humbly submit yourself to the purpose of God. But now, don't be afraid. God's going to bring you back to his purpose. How does he bring you back? This is where it gets tricky. Because most of us don't want this message. You know, we, we see this passage. Hey, when you walk through the fire, I'm going to be with you. When you go through the water, I'm going to, it's not going to sweep over you. When it's going to, you're going to go through tough times. Here's what we miss. Who brought the tough times? God did. He's saying, I'm going to bring these times because you've lost your direction. So I'm going to bring you back in direction. So, you know, it might be when we are in the flames or in the flood, not to start cursing the devil, but to say, God, have I lost my direction? Is this, is this from you in order to bring me back in line? Now, here's the great news. God says, hey, don't be afraid. I'm still, I'm sending you in it, but I'm with you in it, which is great news. He still hasn't abandoned us. He's still right there with us, but he's, he's taking us through in order. Doesn't this kind of fly in the face of a prosperity doctrine? Hey, I just want you to be happy and wealthy and healthy and Everything's going to be good. God says, listen, I discipline those I love. Why? Because I've got a purpose, a plan. And I want you to be in, I want us to be engaged in this purpose and this plan together. He says in verse 3, for I, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Who is he? Your Savior. Your Savior. We belong to him. I mean, look at these things. He says, I created you. I formed you. I've redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You're mine. I will be with you. And here's what I think he's trying to say. He's trying to say, hey, look, here, it's, not, it's not important what you deserve. It's important whose you are. Because honestly, every one of us deserves the wrath of God unhindered just unleashed on us. I don't care how good you think you are. Compared to God, the holy, righteous God, you are not deserving of grace and mercy, but because he's our Savior, he calls us by his name. He's going to bring us. He says, some of these passages are just incredible if you really take them apart. He says, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, listen to this. He says, I will give men in exchange for you and in people in exchange for your life. 
you know, this kind of blows us a little bit. I mean, think about the Exodus, for instance. He's going to come to that in the verses right after that. God saved Israel at Egypt's expense. God handed over Babylon, who the, is, the nation is about to be carried off to Babylon. He's going to give Babylon to the Persians. He's going to hand them over so that Israel can go back. I, you know, if, if it comes right down to it, I start to, wow, God, that seems pretty hard. That seems pretty harsh that you would sacrifice some people for the sake of other people. But then he brings it all the way down and says, look, I'm willing to do what I've done. And I'm willing to sacrifice my own son in order to bring you back. That's how I'm, I'm, I'm willing to put me, my son, on the line to go to earth to die for you in order to bring you back. That's my purpose. And you know what we have to do? We have to stand back humbly and say, I cannot get my head around that. I couldn't do it myself. He says in verses 5 through 7, I'm going to keep reading, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by not my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. That's us. We're the sons and daughters he's brought from the ends of the earth. He created, he's formed, and he, he has made. Here's the idea. Why do you do what you do? Why do you go to church? Why do you pray? Why do you read God's word? Why do you, why do you give money to the work of God? Why do you share faith with others? Why do you do what you do? In this book, Moments, that I was referring to earlier, they interviewed a janitor at a hospital. And it, the conversation went something like this. Why do you clean hospital rooms? His answer, because that's what my boss tells me to do. Why? Because it keeps the rooms from getting dirty. Why does that matter? Well, because it keeps the rooms more sanitary and more pleasant. Why does that matter? Because it keeps the patients healthy and happy. In other words, why do you do what you do? Well, because God told me to do it. No, no, no. Why do you do what you do? Well, because I feel a little better when I, when I do it. No, no, no. Why do you do what you do? Well, because um, I grow in the Lord. No, no, no. Why do you do what you do? Because when I do what the Lord says, I'm a light to the world around me of his glory. I am displaying his purpose and his plan to the world. People, we need to get back to our purpose. And humbly say, this is not about whether you like that song or not. You know, honestly, it's not about whether you like me or not. It's hard to believe you wouldn't, but I, in, in, in any case, it's hard. It's not about me. This is about the Word of God, the glory of God being on display before the world. And if we, if we don't get back to our purpose, I don't care how many lights, how many smoke machines, how many... How, how great, how many people come. If we're not doing what God told, tells us to do, we're failing at his purpose. And we need to humbly say this is about him. 
and not about us. Verses 10 and 11, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Who, who are we? We're his witnesses. In other words, we're declaring we have a Savior. We bear witness of the change in our lives. I'm going to read you a long quote. Hang with me. It's from a classic book by C.S. Lewis called Miracles. And in the ultimate purpose... I believe the ultimate reason why God loves us is for us to be his witnesses to the world. I, I think going to heaven is a great thing. I've said this before. I really want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Amen? Are you with me? But that's not why I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed in order that I have a relationship with the living God and I display the world that there is indeed a Savior. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Hang with me as I read this long quote. It is always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. He says, I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further in Christianity. An impersonal God? Well, that's well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads? That's better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap? Best of all. But God himself alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, which he calls man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he had found us. You get the point? He's saying, listen, we dabble at religion because we, we like the ethereal, the beautiful, the, the God inside our head, the God that we can tap for our own purposes. But what if God is really real and shows up and pulls at us? My goodness. What would happen to us then? I once heard a young guy say, you know, it's really cool to look for God, but it's really not cool to find him. That's the way many of us operate. God has a purpose, a plan, a direction for us. Here's the final point. Receive the permission he gives you to receive and experience his newness. God is saying, hey, it's okay. I'm doing new things. Come on. Admit your problem. What's the problem? Well, 
I'm self-centered. I don't want to do what God wants to do. I want to do things my way. Humbly submit yourself to his purpose. And then when he moves, go. Do what he's calling us to do. Here's where we get to that passage. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew over the, out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wit. Forget the former things. Hey, don't dwell on the, just the exodus. That was good. You know, the horses and riders thrown into the sea stuff. Good stuff. But don't just dwell on the past. Live in God's purpose in the moment. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. God is making a way. God is able to reenact all those things in the Exodus in your life today. Do you believe that? It may be a new way, but he wants you to be delivered. He wants you to be set free. He wants you out of bondage, and he will provide a way. If we admit, I can't do this on my own. I don't want to try to do this on my own. I want to experience the newness of life in God today. In 1922, a Nobel-winning scientist scribbled a note to a bellboy in Japan while he was traveling through because he didn't have enough money to give the guy a tip. And here's what he wrote. A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. I kind of took the phrase apart. It didn't really mean anything. I'll read it to you again. A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. And he said to the guy, you know, Due to my fame, and he wasn't being boastful, he was just being honest. Due to my fame, there's a good chance this note will actually bring you more wealth than if I actually gave you a tip. Well, it turned out to be true. Because last year, that note from Einstein that he had written to this bellhop sold for $1.5 million dollars. Now, it didn't get sold to them by the bellhop. It pat changed hands several times, but it was worth much more than you could ever imagine. Here's the point. His love is worth more than we can ever know. We sang it, didn't we, today? The richness of his grace and glory. God wants to do great things in us this year, this day, this moment, if we'll receive from him. For what purpose? Well, he says, I'm making all things new. There's coming a day when everything's going to be new. So if you don't like new things, you're headed in the wrong direction. Because there's coming a day when everything is going to be new. For what purpose? So that his people will proclaim his praise. 
to the nation, to the world, to the people around. Here's what I'm trying to... I don't know if I've done a very good job of this. I pray that the word of God doesn't return void. I know it doesn't. But here's why I'm trying to say this. I think, I believe, I know that God wants to do great things in your life. And, and I want to, in all love, say this. The reason he's not is because of you. And I don't want to say it harshly. I just want to say it in love. I'm the reason. God is not doing what he wants to do, I think, even in our church. The problem is us. We need to refocus on our purpose. We need to admit, okay, we got a problem. I want to get out of the way. I want to humbly say, God, show me where I've erred. And I want to receive, I want to walk. Thank you for the permission to walk in the newness and direction of life. I receive the truth that your mercies and grace are new when? Every morning. So receive it. Receive the newness and grace of God that's available in your life. Don't live on yesterday's stuff. Receive what God, and that's the kind of relationship he wants for us. For us to walk in that every day. Mitch, team, come back up. I, I want to sing, uh, I want to sing um, that song, What a Beautiful Name. Just the, the, the grace and glory of God over us today, that we just worship his name. And I believe as we do, God's going to release in us what he wants to do in us. So stand up with me if you would. I want to pray over us. Lord, we thank you right now. We confess and we repent of the areas where we have lost direction. We've lost vision. God, help us to refocus today. God, we've, we're staring at the wrong stuff. We know it. We're staring at our own hurts. We're staring at our own wounds. We're staring at our own failures. We're star staring at the failures of others. We're staring at the things the world tells us to stare at. We're looking at the wrong thing. We've lost vision. And I pray, God, that you would we, we come before you humbly this morning and confess there's nothing worth more than the living hope that comes from you. We are your redeemed. And when we go through the trials and difficulties and the discipline, we thank you that you are there with us every moment and every step. And Lord, this morning, we humbly submit ourselves to receive what you desire for us to walk in the newness of life. So today, Lord, we say what a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus, the name that redeems the the name that, that gives us life. Nothing can stand in your way, O oh Lord.